Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. So we'll go back to the keynote here. And <clears throat> Numbers in Hebrew is actually called In the Wilderness. That's the name of it. Hebrew books of the Bible are named by the first word of the book. And the first word in Hebrew of Numbers is In the Wilderness. So the, the, the title of Genesis is In the Beginning. And the title of Numbers is In the Wilderness. Very cool titles. I wish we had stuck with those. We looked at the path of the Exodus, leaving the Nile Delta, coming down around the peninsula and crossing the Gulf of Aqaba into modern-day northwestern Saudi Arabia. Uh, the classic uh, Exodus, of course, has Mount Sinai on what we call the Sinai Peninsula, and maybe that's what happened. I don't think so, but maybe, whatever. It doesn't matter. They're in the desert somewhere, uh, wherever it happened. And now they we've we're on the end of the forty years, and now they're making their way north. And you can see the little, small little body of water, uh, on about a, a third of the way in from the right side at the very top. That's the Dead Sea. So they're making their way just north of there, and they're in those mountain ranges there, just to the right of the Dead Sea. That uh, is the the mountains of Moab, and so that's that's where we left off last night. There uh, geographically, that's where they are. Just to recap the books themselves, Exodus 1 through 6 is the brief history of the Hebrews. Moses growing up being adopted, God's call. Chapter 7 through 11 are the 10 plagues. Actually, sort of the first nine plagues. 12 through 15 is the Passover, which is, of course, the 10th plague. And uh, the actual Exodus. Chapter 16 through 18, the Lord provides for the new nation of Israel <clears throat> now that they have left Egypt. And then in chapter 19, he appears, the Lord appears on Sinai. <clears throat> Moses goes up to speak with him. And from 19 through 40, you have everything that, that happens there at Sinai. So the Lord's glory, the instructions for the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments, God defining himself, the story of the golden calf and the, the judgment that follows, all of that. Still at the base of Sinai, we have the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> One through seven are the various offerings that are to be given at different times and for different reasons. Chapters 8 through 10 are the ordination of Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, 
and the judgment of Nadab and Abihu when they do something that is so unspeakably unholy, um, the Lord destroys them immediately. And then chapters 11 through 27, we get um, <clears throat> seemingly instigated by this very unholy event, um, just an enumerated list of laws related to purity and cleanliness and holiness. And that idea of holiness is something that we've looked at from way back in the Genesis series. I know many of you were here for that. And right away in the first sentence of Genesis, we start getting an idea of what holiness means. And now we see that word really being used in um, the concept really being defined in every part of life, from the food we eat to the company we keep, to sexual relations, to the clothes that we wear, and <clears throat> all that really defined in the law. Uh, then we get into the book of Numbers, or the book of In the Wilderness, in chapters 1 through 8 are the first census and the organization, how they're going to travel with the tabernacle and the organization of the various camps. Nine through 10 is the second Passover. So now it's been a year that they're out in the wilderness and they actually move into the wilderness at this point. Chapter 11 and 12, immediately there is rebellion. People wanting to eat quail, Miriam and Aaron rebel and question Moses' authority. 13 and 14, spies are sent in to scout out Canaan. 10 come back with um, a bad report. Caleb and Joshua are the only two that believe that even though the people there are large and the cities are fortified, that the Lord is with them. Unfortunately, the people listen to the other 10. <clears throat> I call them the other 10 because we don't remember their names. Their names are, are listed in the scripture, but who remembers them? Uh, the only two that we remember, of course, are Joshua and Caleb because uh, they were the two that were faithful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, chapters uh, 15 through 19, we have more rebellion. This is uh, the man picking up wood on the Sabbath. This is Korah's rebellion and those that were with him. Uh, Dothan and Abiram, I think were their names. And uh, then you also have holiness. You have how the priests are to be treated and, and supported. And um, the wearing of tassels to, as a reminder of God's commands and some other things like that. Uh, chapter 20 is Water from the Rock. This is the second time this has happened. First time was back, um, Exodus 17, 18, somewhere around there. Now, this time, Moses strikes the rock when God asks him to speak to it and also says to the Israelite people, um, talking about himself and Aaron, must we, you know, give you this water from this rock and, and basically takes credit for the water that comes out rather than giving credit to the Lord and showing the Lord's holiness. And so just lots of disobedience and just some bad moves there by Moses. And that prevents him from being allowed to enter the promised land. Um, we have the uh, fiery bronze serpent in chapter 21. Chapters 22 through 24 were, uh, were Balaam's donkey. And actually chapter 25 kind of goes along with that, where the Israelites are prostituting themselves with the Moabite women. And Phineas has to come in and take care of that. And there's also a plague that kills, uh, I think it's 24,000 of the Israelites. And then we have the second census. And by the time the second census happens at the end of the 40th year, what we see is that the entire first generation, everyone counted in the first census, is now dead. Except for, of course, Moses is still alive. But um, <clears throat> except for Joshua and Caleb, because they are going to be allowed to enter the promised land because they had faith in the Lord. They trusted him. 
we talked about that's what the word faith means, just trust. And so that's chapter 26 that we looked at last night was the second census. And so tonight we're going to look at chapter 27. And there's two things that happen in chapter 27. Uh, Zelophehad's daughters and the torch is passed to Joshua. So we're going to look at that um, tonight. Yeah. Uh, just the rest of the book of Numbers. We'll be looking at it the rest of this week. But 28 through 30 are going to be laws about offerings and vows. Chapter 31 is going to be um, war with Midian. And then 32 is going to talk about the Transjordan settlements. We'll, we'll get into that stuff a little later. So we're going to look at uh, Zelophehad's daughters and uh, the passing of the torch to Joshua. And unfortunately tonight, because uh, like I said, I, I did not do this exact lesson in class. I don't have the scripture on the screen. So you can just listen to me, read it. Um, you can just look at me while I'm reading it. So my apologies for that. So <clears throat> Numbers chapter 27 in verse 1, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, yeah, it's not a long chapter, so I'll just read the, the whole chapter. Beginning in verse 1. The daughters of Zelophehad approached. Zelophehad was the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. These were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tizra. They stood before Moses, the priest, uh, Eliezer, sorry, they stood before Moses, the priest Eliezer, the leaders, and the entire community at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and said, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not among Korah's followers, who gathered together against the Lord. Instead, he died because of his own sin, and he had no sons. So basically they're saying, you know, he was older than 20, and so he died the same way everybody else did. He was not, he did not die in particular because of one of these particular rebellions, specifically uh, Korah's rebellion. And as it turns out, he had no sons. He only had these daughters. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Since he had no son, give us property among our father's brothers. <clears throat> it's very hard for us to kind of conceive of this, but women owning property, property given to women at this time, you're talking about, you know, was this Bronze Age? It's like 50, uh, 1500 BC or so, I think. Uh, we're now 40 years so this was this is around 1406 BC, something like that, I believe, 1416, something like that. So a long time ago, 3,500 years ago, uh, women owning property in a, in any society at that time was unheard of. Uh, certainly in an Eastern society, even today, would be sort of an anomaly. But here you have these daughters that say our father would have a share of inheritance. His family, his clan should have a portion. We looked in, in the census where God said, you're going to divide up the land so that each nation has a piece of land proportional to the number of people in that nation. So you kind of filter that reasoning on down. And <clears throat> here you have this family saying, well, we should get a little family plot, except um, we're all women. Our father is dead. And so um, there's no there's no provision for us because everything's 
very male dominated. It's dom- the lineage and everything's passed down through the name of the father. <clears throat> so rather than them being turned away, Moses does the right thing here, which is he takes the case before the Lord, as we see in verse five. First thing that I want to say about that is Moses has been given a punishment that he's not going to enter the promised land. And at that point, it's almost like Moses could just say, well, then forget all this, you know, forget this then. But he doesn't because that's not who Moses is. That's not his character. And he really does know the Lord in spite of his his shortfall, you know, in the in the earlier chapter. Uh, Moses loves the people and he loves the Lord. And what are the two greatest commands? To love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Moses embodies that so readily. And so um, so rather than Moses just saying, I wouldn't have time for this, or women can't own property, or whatever the common thinking might have been of the day, instead, we find verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord answered him, what, Z- uh, what Zelophehad's daughters say is correct. You are to give them uh, hereditary property among their father's brothers and transfer their father's inheritance to them. So God sides with the women and he says, hey, they're right. You know, that's what you should do. Tell the Israelites, when a man dies without having a son, transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative of his clan, and he will take possession of it. This is to be a statutory ordinance for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. So with these women sort of standing up for what belonged to them or what ought to belong to them, not only were they blessed by getting what they asked for and, and, and deserved, but they God creates a new law here, basically. And so we still see law being created as we uh, going through the Torah here. And God creates this new law to sort of enumerate cases like this so that Moses is able to sort of judge for himself and the leaders are able to sort of judge for themselves in situations like this. And so you see the law is much bigger than this particular circumstance because it goes beyond daughters to brothers and and um, and that sort of thing. But um, what a wonderful thing that they uh, stood up and spoke out at uh, at a time and in a geographical area where that would not have been um, maybe not a, a probably not an easy thing to do. But because of who Moses is and because of who the Lord is, they were rewarded and they received their plot of lands. Very cool. So the exercise that we did in class was this was really the only story that we talked about. And um, it's uh, not often in, in, you know, Sunday school at a church of Christ that um, you hear a female's voice, um, you know, in, in class. Uh, they'll answer questions or ask questions or, you know, that sort of thing, but not in any sort of teaching capacity, of course. So I decided to take that time to just have them read some of the scriptures. And so uh, I had a list of scriptures that were about women from Genesis all the way to Revelation, because uh, Genesis, we have, um, you know, uh, Adam and Eve, and we have the, the first woman and how, what a beautiful, wonderful experience. Uh, that was, at least in the beginning. And then we get all the way to, to Revelation and it talks about the woman in Revelation. And then you have uh, the wedding, you know, Christ waiting for his bride. And so 
the position of women is just so elevated in scripture. It's very hard for us in a 21st century Western society to really be cognizant of that because um, we, we, it's, we're looking at it from the other side. Um, all the equality that women have in society now is just really largely because of Christian thought. It just really is. And uh, so it's very hard for us to, to sort of conceive of what it may be like. And we've got a long way to go still. There's no doubt about that. But uh, I just, I love showing that here in the, the Old Testament, in the oldest scriptures of the Bible, women are just so elevated and important and um, and God sees them as as important and as his children, the same as he does males. And so anyone that says um, uh, cer certainly much of uh, both Christianity and ancient Judaism was male dominated and in many cases um, to, to the detriment of those trying to you know fully follow the Lord. So you could certainly say that the religion, um, has been um, male-dominated and um, sort of male-preferential. But what you can't say is that the Lord is male-preferential or that the Lord has um, somehow uh, weighed things out in his laws or in his, in his scripture in favor of men versus women. Now, there are some things around uh, male headship in terms of uh, authority and, and teaching and, and um organization within the church. And, um, I gotta be honest, I, I don't, I don't fully understand that. And as I, as I don't understand it, I, I go with what I read and I go with the people that I really trust on what I read. And so I, I, I trust those, those men that, that male headship is, is present in scripture. And there's a reason for that. And Paul seems to talk about that in, in his letters. So, um, it seems that men and women have different roles to play in the world, different roles to play in family, different roles to play in church. But um, just because something is different does not mean that it is inferior in any way. And so that's one thing that I love about this story here is that these women come to the men and say, hey, shouldn't we get some land? And Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord says, of course, of course they should. They're right. What they say is correct. And uh, just really, I think, elevates the position of women from what it was at that time. And again, we still have a long way to go, but I think scripture points us in the right direction if we continue to grasp onto those principles. Um, again, this is all summed up under loving your neighbor as yourself, right? So um, we'll, uh, we'll move on into uh, the second half of 27 here. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abiram range and see the land that I have given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you will also be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother was. So Aaron has passed away. So you notice that we've gone from Aaron, the priest to Eliezer, the priest, right? So Eliezer is Aaron's son. And so just textually, I think you've noticed that Aaron's out of here already. And here this is confirmed, right? You also be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was. And so um, uh, Moses is now going to go to the place where he's going to see the promised land. But since he's not allowed to enter it, it will be at that point that he will be gathered to his people. In other words, he will die. 
verse 14. When the community quarreled in the wilderness of Zin, both of you rebelled against my command. That's both you, uh, Moses and Aaron, both of you rebelled against my command to demonstrate my holiness in their sight at the waters. Those were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So Moses appealed to the Lord. May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all, appoint a man over the community who will go out before them and come back in before them and who will bring them out and bring them in so that the Lord's community won't be like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, this is this is the man's dying wish. You know, it's not about his own legacy. It's not about anything. He, he says, will you just give them someone who will be a shepherd to them? And uh, just a sweet thing to ask in his um, last days. Verse 18, the Lord replied to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man who has the spirit in him and lay your hands on him. Have him stand before the priest Eliezer and the whole community and commission him in their sight. Confer some of your authority on him so that the entire Israelite community will obey him. He will stand before the priest Eliezer who will consult the Lord for him with the decision of the Urim. This, the Urim and the Thummim were some sort of um, decision-making kind of thing. Um, we're not really sure totally what that was, but it was something that the priest had. Um, we, we think it was kind of like dice or something, or almost like flipping a coin kind of. But the, the point was not to leave things to chance, but rather to say, God controls the, the physics of how these are going to land. And so when we go to make a decision about something for God, we might, uh, the priest might use these and he would do it prayerfully. And from that would receive from the Lord, which way. Um, they were to go. And so that's what this is talking about here, where it says he'll consult the Lord for him with the decision of the Urim. He and all the Israelites with him, even the entire community will go out and come back in at his command. So Moses says, give them someone that could be a shepherd to them. And Moses says, take Joshua. Joshua's the guy. Verse 22, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, had him stand before the priest Eliezer and the entire community, laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And so that's the end of chapter 27. So once again, what's happening right here at the end of 27 is discipleship. And we see someone who was just sort of pulled from the ranks uh, and then was sort of a, an assistant to Moses. And then he was sent out on mission as a spy. And now he's being handed the reins of being the shepherd of the entire nation of Israel. So remember the number of 600 plus thousand, that's just 20 year old able-bodied men, men able to serve in the military. So that's uh, not going to count um, children, anyone under the age of 20. It's not going to count any of the women. And it's not going to count any of the Erevrav, the Riffraff, any of the other non-Israelite people that left Egypt with them that are that are still among them, that are still around, any of those that are still there. So you're, you're, you're talking probably as many as 2 million people out in the wilderness that Joshua is now in charge of. But Joshua's had good training because for the past 40 years, he's been right there at the right hand of Moses since Sinai. He's seen things that many others uh, could not even get close to. And he has uh, proven himself faithful the same way as Caleb did uh, by trusting in the Lord. 
And so he'll get to do the thing that Moses doesn't, which is to enter the promised land and to lead the people into the promised land. And so this is what I want to talk about a little bit is this spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth. And I don't really have specific notes on this. This is something that I teach about a lot. It's something I like to talk about with people one-on-one. I am going to drop a little, um, a, um, link here in the comments and this is northboulevard.com slash dbs and i will pin it so that way i'll try to pin it there we go okay and so that is a link to discovery bible study uh over at north boulevard site and if you go to that link um it is it has um, a little seven-minute video that will tell you all about Discovery Bible Study. It has uh, the questions of Discovery Bible Study, which uh, I think I've talked about before, but if not, we'll come back and talk about that maybe after uh, this series is over. It has some sample Discovery Bible Studies with some some video lessons and things like that. And then under the, the seven-minute explainer video on Discovery Bible Study, under that, there's a little paragraph of text And buried in that paragraph of text, there's a link that says uh, Discipleship Handbook or Discipling Handbook. And that's where you can download a PDF for free of North Boulevard's Discipling Handbook. This is uh, sort of a Cliff Notes version, or for those of you younger that are watching, it's a Spark Notes version. Um, Just a summary of a lot of the things that we at North Boulevard have learned about discipleship from a lot of different places. We've taken the things that we have found work in our context as, um, you know, Churches of Christ, as in, in the Bible Belt, in the South, whatever, in America. We've taken the things that have really worked for us, and we have um, put that uh, into a single handbook so that um, you can sort of see um, it's kind of the best of the things that we like. It. It, it can stand alone, but it's better if there's some explaining that goes along with it so you kind of know what you're looking at. It's not really meant to stand alone. It's not meant to be handed out as a track or something like that. You know, It's meant to sit down with somebody over coffee and kind of go through a few pages at a time. That's what I would recommend if you wanted to share this with somebody or if you wanted to just explore it with somebody. You don't even have to um, you know, know what you're looking at necessarily. Um, and I'll show you. Uh, we'll go, on, go over to the handbook. This is the page that we're going to look at. But um, so the cover of it looks like this. And inside the front cover here, you have this idea of growing disciples and planting churches. These are the two things that North Boulevard is really focused on doing discipleship and everything that we do. And one huge strategy in doing that would be church planning. That's those are essentially outposts where you can make as many disciples as possible. These pages here, the first one, alignment, that just simply means uh, if you're not aligned in the words that you're using and the process that you have in, in the vision that you have, then everybody will be going in all kinds of different directions or we'll be talking about different things, using the same words and all that. So that whole page on alignment, which is worth a read, is, is just about um, we need to make sure that at least when we're talking with each other, the words we're using mean the same things. We're talking about the same process. 
and we have the same vision for what a mature disciple looks like. Now, that's not to say that you can, you know, I mean, you can disagree with that, but, you know, it's like when we talk about those things, we're going to use that as a jumping off point, as a, as a point of reference. And so that's what this handbook attempts to do is sort of align definitions and process and, and vision so that uh, people understand what, you know, what a, what a biblical worldview of discipleship looks like. Uh, the page on the right, page two, is what a disciple is. And if, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4, 19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you uh, fishers of people. I'll make you fishers of men. And so he says right out of the gate, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you into something. Well, what is it that I'm going to make you into? What I'm going to make you into is someone who fishes for people just like me. So in other words, Trust me, follow me, obey me. I will transform you into someone who will lead other people the way I lead you. And that was his mission. That's the first thing that he said to his disciples in Matthew 4, 19. And so a disciple is somebody who's following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. Uh, and again, import, importantly, at the very top of the page there, a disciple is an apprentice, not a student. A, stu a student learns something. A disciple learns how to do something. And it's distinctly different. So turn the page over to page three, and we see this page on making disciples. So what does it mean to make a disciple? If we know what a disciple is, someone who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus. Then what does it mean to make a disciple? How do we make a disciple? And this really all, all boils down to the quote at the bottom of page three that just says, disciple making means helping people trust and follow Jesus. If you can remember that phrase, trust and follow Jesus, that's the whole thing. What do you need to do as a disciple? Trust and follow Jesus. What do you need to do as a disciple maker? You need to help other people trust and follow Jesus. If you can just work that phrase, trust and follow Jesus into your vocabulary and just use it over and over and over every chance you get, I think that your church is going to be blessed. Your family is going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. Because here's the thing. Until you have a vocabulary for something, it's very hard to learn anything about it. So we don't remember a lot of these names in the Old Testament because they're not names like ours. You know, like it's easier to remember names from the New Testament, like Luke, Matthew, John. I mean, these are normal names to us only because we've been named after these people primarily, right? We remember names like Joshua. We remember Moses because he's such an important character. Abraham, he's an important character. But again, that's a name we, we still use, you know, Abraham Lincoln and these kinds of things. And it's a lot harder to remember names like, you know, Zelophehad or whatever his name is, right? We, we, because we have no point of reference for that. Uh, it's hard for us to understand what the decision-making with the Urim and the Thummim is, things like this, because we don't know what that is. We don't know what those words are. We don't know what that means. Uh, it's from a culture that we don't understand. So uh, in, in the same way, people who are barbecue testers, you know, they have to learn uh, smoky. They have to learn um, vinegar barbecue versus ketchup barbecue versus mustard barbecue. They learn pork barbecue versus beef barbecue versus brisket, you know, these kinds of things. So um, until you can develop a vocabulary, you don't have a, a metric for being able to uh, really talk about something. Same goes is true with, you know, people who do, you know, wine tasting or, or something like that. It's like they, they, they have to sort of learn the vocabulary first before you can talk about it. My background is in filmmaking. When I went to film school, the first thing they teach you is cinema language. 
uh, how cinema language functions and what the names of all the parts are. This is a wide shot. This is a close up. This is an insert shot. This is an over the shoulder. You know, some of the things are seem kind of self-explanatory, but until you have the correct lingo, the correct language to use, you're just kind of talking around in vagaries. Once you have the language to use, suddenly you have these concrete like Lego blocks that you can now begin to build something with. And so that's one thing that I think the handbook does really well, if I can say so. I had I was one of a, a couple of people that, that worked on putting it together. But one of the things I think the handbook does really well is that it pulls some terminology in and gives you a good vocabulary for being able to discuss discipleship. Again, that goes back to that alignment thing. So um, again, that, that whole phrase, trust and follow Jesus, if you can work that into your vocabulary, suddenly that now becomes... It becomes something that the thing you think about most be- rises in importance in your mind. So if you're thinking about that phrase, trust and follow Jesus most, now when it comes time to make a decision, now you're asking, is this going to help me trust and follow Jesus? Right. And so you're not asking questions like, is this going to help me be a better Christian or what does that even mean? And um, is this, is this, uh, you know, is this the right thing to do? That's a great question to ask, but how do you know if it's the right thing to do or not? Well, is it going to help me or someone else trust and follow Jesus? That's that's the goal. Remember, the goal is to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the goal of all the laws is to make those two things happen as much as possible. And so even when you ask a question, it's a great question, like what's the right thing to do? Um, different people are going to answer that different ways unless the, their underlying foundational question is, how is this going to help me trust and follow Jesus? Because some people will answer whether something is right or not, and they won't have that as their underlying foundation, right? So trust and follow Jesus. Uh, some things there, discipleship lifestyle, which we'll, we'll skip. You guys can look at that when you get the book. Uh, discipleship context. I think we actually talked about that one night, even though I didn't show this chart, just the different sizes of people all around. And very briefly, in this last couple of minutes here, I just want to show you this chart, and then you can download the PDF and look at all the text more in depth. But these are the stages of how a disciple grows. So when someone does not have faith, when someone, um, before they are saved by Christ, they are spiritually dead. They do not have life. They do not have life until they have Christ. And the thing that a dead person needs more than anything is life. So, you know, uh, it's great that they have your friendship and it's great that you are feeding their family and and meeting needs and you ought to do those things. But none of those things are worth anything if they don't have Christ. And so uh, it's imperative that they understand who Christ is, what Christ did for them so that they can get on board and say, yeah, I want to follow this Jesus. So at the point that they decide to do that and are baptized, they commit to a life of repentance and they are baptized as a demonstration that they are now going to follow Christ for the rest of their life. That's where we have this green wedge at the thing there in the center that says born again. I'm going to attempt to blow this up and we'll see if, oh yeah, great. Okay. So um, you'll see where it says um, dead there and then the born again wedge we're just kind of going around clockwise the circle. Once someone is born again, now they're a spiritual infant. Okay, so they're not a they're they're not going to. I mean, they're not going to be a preacher right away. Uh, you're not going to do things. Um, you know, they're not going to be teaching class right away. They're not going to become an elder right away. 
They're infants. And in fact, when you think about a biological infant, okay, as soon as an infant is born, you don't let the infant drive home. You don't send the infant off to college. You know, you don't let the infant cook dinner, right? What? No, you have to do everything for the infant. The infant can't do anything. All infants do is cry and, um, you know, make messes and eat and sleep and, that's, and lay there. That's, that's pretty much it, right? So it is totally dependent. The infant is totally dependent upon the parent. So many times in church, I've seen us baptize people and then applaud and tell them, hey, we're praying for you, and then never invest anything in their life. And then we just shake our heads that they're walking away. Well, we can't believe they left the church. We can't believe they turned their back on Jesus. Well, they didn't They didn't know how to do anything else but go back to their old life because no one, no one, they were totally dependent and no one took care of them. No one was a parent to them. So uh, what we see after a spiritual infant is they have to be parented. They're totally dependent. And then as they're sort of spoon-fed things, then they, they become a child and they learn to start doing things on their own. So think about, again, a biological child. Biological, biological child goes from, you know, l- learning to speak to learning to write to learning to read, right? Uh, from learning to count to numbers to you know, adding and subtracting, and then eventually calculus, right? Um, a child learns to tie his own shoe, learns to get dressed. Um, a child is thrust into social settings and has to sort of develop a personality, and a child learns what they like and don't like, and they learn to speak for themselves. And all think about all the things that a child learns, and think about what if a child had to learn all those things with no parent around, so if you're talking from, you know, age five to 13, can you imagine um, a, a child's life from age five to 13 with no parent around? How difficult that would be. I, I, I have some friends that kind of grew up that way and um, they talk about, you know, how really difficult it was not really having family that was pouring into them as parents at that point. Spiritually, it's the same thing. If somebody comes out of this infant stage and learns to start doing things on their own, that's not the time that we put them in charge of teaching a class or send them off on their own or anything like that. Instead, we continue to parent them, continue to help them grow, but gradually giving them more independence. So whereas an infant is all about dependence, the child starts to become a little more independent. Then they move on to a young adult stage and the young adult stage, now they're becoming more interdependent because they are getting old enough and responsible enough and capable enough that they can begin to give back. So think about, again, a biological young adult, someone 13 to 20, something like that. They're, they learn to start driving. Uh, girls start babysitting as their first job. Uh, you know, Boys get a, a paper route or, or deliver pizzas or work at Taco Bell or whatever. And you have them starting to go back and contribute to the family, contribute to the society. They're helping out with chores. They're giving rides to little brother, these kinds of things. So the young adult is now active and participating in the life of the family. So the infant is dependent and needs everything shared with it. The child begins to develop connections, connections with information, connections with people, connections with just their purpose, their place in the world. The young adult is now active, active in the family, or a spiritual young adult would be active in ministry. This is where the spiritual young adult begins to um, really participate in the programs of the church and really participate in the mission and the service programs that are going on at the church, finding out sort of where their heart and ministry lies and participating in that first with guidance. And then again, they become more independent as they go. 
And when the time comes and they find someone who is an infant to them, they become a parent, right? Biologically, the only thing that you need to be a parent is to have a child, okay? The Lord would like for you to be uh, in love and married before you have a child, but biologically, the only thing that's required for someone to be a parent is to have a child. And spiritually, it's much the same way. The only thing that's really required for you to be a spiritual parent is to have a spiritual child, is to have somebody who is an infant or a child that you're just helping to grow. You are giving them the things that they are totally dependent on. Um, and the number one way that you're going to do that as a spiritual parent is reading the Bible with somebody. Um, being a spiritual parent to somebody does not mean that they have to move into your home. Being a spiritual parent to somebody does not mean that you've got to sit down and analyze all of their actions and behaviors and, okay, what did you do this weekend? It's confessional time. It's like, I mean, you want to have some accountability, but it's, 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 I think people get really terrified about this idea of discipleship that they think that, um, this is going to be like homeschooling or something like that. And it's just all, it's just all wrong. Discipleship is a big commitment and it is a lot of time, but it's a great joy. It's like, it's more like parenting than it is like teaching. So we've had that, that, that idea of, of teaching, of sharing the gospel. And it's particularly in churches of Christ, it's been very academic and very word based, not in like God's word, but like in text word. It's, it's a very, um, it's just a very academic sort of enlightenment American way of doing things since the 50s and 60s. How do you teach somebody to do something? Well, you have a class. How do you teach somebody to do something? Well, you have a fill-in-the-blank worksheet. And those things are all helpful and they're great tools. And we should have classes and fill-in-the-blank worksheets. We should have all those things. But that's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is like parenting. It is like uh, living life with someone. Maybe they do move in with you. Yeah, that would be a big commitment, right? But maybe it's just that you go out for coffee with them once a week. Maybe it's, um, you know, the breakfast that you're going to eat anyway. Maybe instead of doing it at home with your family, maybe you do that at Panera at six o'clock in the morning before work with um, somebody that you see from church once a week. That's not really that big a deal. It's not that big a financial commitment. You don't even have to pay for their food. Just get together with them. Just spend time with them. Call them on the phone. But the number one thing is about the reading of scripture together. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to teach anything. If you do Discovery Bible study, the two of you can just read it together. So the, it, it's not about knowing more than somebody else, but it is about having a little more spiritual maturity than someone else. So what we've seen in the book of Numbers up to this point is Moses has really coached Joshua experientially in the things that they have been doing. He has brought him with him so that he can observe as Moses goes to interact with the Lord. He speaks to Joshua about sort of things that he intends to do or not do. Um he sends Joshua on mission. So Joshua sort of is a young adult when he sends him out as a spy in Canaan. And now it's time for Joshua to become a parent, right? So Moses has been the spiritual parent and Moses has had to go through that sp spiritual growth as well. Aaron had to go through that spiritual growth. We've looked at that. And now Joshua has gone through that. Now Joshua is a parent. And what is he going to do? Well, he's going to lead the people and he's going to lead them through spiritual growth and through spiritual development. And if we were to continue on after Deuteronomy and read Joshua and on into the judges and all that, we would just see this continuing spiritual family that goes on, this discipleship that continues, the spiritual mentorship that continues. So this is what I'm going to leave you with tonight is take a look at this and decide where am I on this wheel? Am I spiritually dead? I just don't think the Bible, I think you think it's a big work of fiction. I don't believe this Jesus guy, maybe he lived, but he was just a good teacher. He wasn't God in the flesh. Is that you? 
okay, have you been born again? You committed to repentance and been baptized? Are, okay, so are you a spiritual infant? Are you totally dependent? Do you need someone to show you how to do everything? Do you say things like, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian? Or do you say things like, well, people have hurt me, so you know, it's just me and God, we'll do what we want. Are you a spiritual child? You know, are you somebody that says, oh, I really love my small group. Don't add anybody to it. Or or my church isn't feeding me. Or, you know, I, I just really don't like that song we sang today. I wish they wouldn't do those new songs. Or, oh, boy, I wish they'd quit singing all those old songs. All right. These are the kind of things like a spiritual child might say. Someone who's making some connections and doing some things on their own, but haven't really grown into maturity to where they're giving back. Then you look at a young adult. Someone who says things like, wow, I love my small group, but I know there's others that need a group like this. Uh, in my devotions, I came across something that I have a question about, and I want to learn. I'm curious about this. I want to study this. Um, you know, I think if somebody helped me, maybe I could lead a group. These, these are the kinds of things that a young adult says. They're, they're now becoming interdependent and giving back to the family. Someone who's a spiritual parent says things like, you know, a guy at work asked me to explain the Bible uh, to him today. We, let's, let's pray for him. Uh, hey, we get to baptize someone from our group tonight. So now where can we get her plugged in? And I love that God has been doing all this stuff with me lately. Let me just let me just tell you about all the good things that God has done. And you can hear the maturity as we go around that circle. So what I'm going to leave you with, my question for you, what, uh, where, where, where do you place yourself? Where do you place yourself on this circle? Um, download that PDF that's in the comments there and, and maybe just read through the booklet and read some more about this. We're going to talk some more about it a little later. Um, but there's, I have a lot more to say about this, but we're way out of time for tonight. But uh, look at this, this wheel, this discipleship wheel, and ask yourself, where am I in my maturity? And uh, be thinking about what it might take to get you to move on around the wheel. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.